He cannot disappear. Maybe hit him high, but what else can he do? He can't disappear. In a slow motion, it looks a little bit bad, but accidents happen. They do. He's done his knees. Well, this is incredible. Now will come the magic sponge. There it is. No scissors, no tape. Build Just it. a dirty old sponge and it's worked. The sponge can wipe out a pandemic. It can cure us all. Yes, welcome back to the Magic Sponge Podcast, a miracle cure for all your rugby league injury issues. I'm Brian Sini. I'm the guy behind NRL Physio on social media. James, my co-host, you are riding high, my friend. Big Broncos victory this week. How are you going? Finals fever and you get the week off. Finals fever and the week off. Very good, Brian, as well. So the conversation has turned to how do we get prelim tickets pretty quickly. So we're sort of moving heaven and earth so we can get down to watch the Broncos in the prelim um, against whoever they play against in a couple of weeks' time. So, yeah, I'm, I'm happy with life, happy with how things are going. How are things with you? Mate, I, I'm all in finals fever. Like, I think uh, one of our listeners, Sean, posted on Twitter the other day, like, at the start of the round, there's only eight games left or something. And I was like... Man, that sucks. Like, you know, only eight games left. So it was one of those things where I tried my utmost to watch every minute of the footy this weekend because, look, NFL starts tomorrow, which is fantastic. But, uh, yeah, look, I'm going to be making the most of it. And there were four, look, you know, two of the games were blowouts, but I thought overall, like, the weekend was just exactly what we wanted, you know, um, from that week one of finals. I'm definitely going to be keen to uh, hit up the prelim with you too if uh, if it falls well. So, uh, yeah, very keen for that. But, look, let's get stuck straight into it because uh, there's plenty to talk about tonight. You guys know why you're here. We're going to talk about the injuries. During the season, obviously, we talk about how that affects super coach fantasy scoring, all that kind of stuff, uh, and heaps more information on that over at patreon.com slash Physio. Most of what we'll talk about tonight, though, is how that affects, you know, guys for the rest of the finals, but then also into next season as well, and their performance, their return to play, a few big injuries there. But otherwise, guys, let's get stuck in to the injury wrap from finals week one and the NRLW. I don't know exactly what he's done. I would have thought it was an ankle, but I'm just guessing. He shouldn't be out for a long period of time. I'm I'm no doctor. We have to wait for the scans, obviously, but that'd be more positive than than negative. Week one of the finals is in the books, Brian, and we're also going to wrap that in the NRLW. First game was the Broncos v Storm. Broncos relatively unscathed out of this one from what it seems, so that's good news for the home team there and my team as it stands. The Storm, though, have a few concerns. We're going to list off these ones and talk in depth about Ryan Pappenhausen at the end. So to start with, Marion Seve, Trent Liero and Tom Eisenhuth are reported as concussions. Xavier Coates with a high ankle sprain as well. And then I'll let you sort of speak specifically to Ryan Pappenhausen and his probable diagnosis, and we'll take a few more questions on him thereafter there, Brian. Yeah, cool. So we'll get through the other guys first because otherwise we'll probably forget to talk about them after, uh, you know, 25 minutes talking about Paps. But uh, so, yeah, the, the concussions, if they are confirmed, you know, obviously the Category 1 signs, they'll be definitely out next week, if not. Category two, they can apply for exemptions, all that kind of stuff. You guys have listened to that enough. You know what uh, what we're dealing with there. Although in saying that, we'll talk about a situation with Joseph Suli later that might uh, throw a cat amongst the pigeons. Xavier Coates with the ankle injury. James, I don't know about you, but for me watching this... It definite this one threw me, and I'm happy to very always happy to admit when I kind of get you know, get something wrong. And and by the time I ended up posting about this one, I probably was saved a little bit because when I first saw it, 
I thought, oh, he's done, you know, something pretty nasty here, particularly to his foot. Uh, the reason that I didn't get to posting it was that paps happened as I was, you know, doing editing up the video and all that kind of stuff. So obviously I went to paps and was talking about that and pretty zonked about that for a while. So, but once I finally got back to Coates, it kind of came out in the post-match presser that they think it's high ankle and all that kind of stuff. But this is just a really strange one because he seemed in so much pain. Like, he was in so much pain. He couldn't... And, and we talk about, like, pain is very subjective. Obviously, you know, some people have better pain tolerances than other people. But... He, his function seemed so affected. Like he needed, he needed the you know the trainer to kind of you know almost help him off the field. He's really struggling with that. It didn't look like all that significant a mechanism. Like the mechanism didn't look like you know his foot got twisted all that much or anything like that. So when that happens, we often find with those innocuous, you know, foot slash ankle injuries, it ends up being what I was thinking of. It was one of those accumulation injuries. So something that had built up over time and then, you know, whether it was his fifth metatarsal or his Liz Frank or something like that's just gone from something not all that obvious. But yeah, like it's come back a minor syndesmosis injury and you know, potentially, like, they're going to monitor him this week. Like, he could be back next week. Like, um, if it, it truly is a minor syndesmosis injury, uh, like I said, one to three weeks, that includes, like, a one-week return to play is returning the next week. So you'd question his sort of, I guess, his effectiveness and all that kind of stuff. Uh, you know, like, his, his game is so much on leg drive, you know, change of direction, jumping, landing, all that kind of stuff. So if he comes back next week he's probably going to be a little bit proppy on that ankle. But uh, before I get to Paps, mate, I mean, like, how did you feel watching that injury? Because I just felt like, for me, it definitely, it was one of those injuries where his response and how he functioned after the injury just didn't match up with the eventual diagnosis. You know the mechanism it looks similar to, Brian, was the earlier in the NRLW season, was it Talia Fuimaono who had that high ankle sprain that was non-contact without direct force to the ankle, it was a little bit similar to that, wasn't it? So it was kind of not as traumatic as you see most high ankle sprains, but she ended up, I think she ended up being sort of a moderate to high grade injury herself. It kind of reminded me of that because I was like, well, it didn't look super, super traumatic. And I don't know if he's had previous surgery there from a high ankle sprain in the past. Was he a high ankle last year as well, maybe? So Perhaps it's an exacerbation of something underlying there. Perhaps it's a similar situation to, you know, even a Jackson Hastings, for example, where he's had the previous surgery, previous repair. It's plate, it's pressure on the plate, it's, you know, minor injury from that point of view, or it's a similar to – I can't remember the NRL player's name, W player's name. Sorry, Brian. I don't know if it was Talia Fulman yeah, or was, not. Yeah. Um, but I just wonder if it's similar to that mechanism. They were probably my only two takeaways from that because, again, when I, look, when I watched it back and it was his right ankle, I thought, oh, there's not really anything that looks super concerning there, but he's obviously fairly distressed and fairly sore on it from a weight-bearing point of view. So obviously there's there's concern for injury there. Have you sort of, I guess, do those things in your mind, either of them ring true or maybe shed some more light on that situation perhaps? Mate, uh, I just had a look and I was going to say you're an absolute genius, but it's, I, and I was just about to come on here and wrap you, how good to have you have you on the show to save my graces but it was his other foot unfortunately with the uh with the high ankle which was last last year yep last year in origin so but 
you know, whether he and, – and also he could have had one from early in his career as well. Uh, but great point on the Fui Mayono one because it, it was very, very similar to that. It was kind of that non-contact, but the foot did tend to go that way. Um, so, yeah, that was an interesting one. Now, look, the big ticket item, Ryan Pappenhausen. Uh, I think, look, we've got a whole bunch of questions, which uh, thanks for everyone sending them through on social media today. But we'll get to – effectively, I just want to start off with – what happened, um, what has happened since, and and where we think we're at at this point. So obviously, we well, you, you didn't see it because they, you know, probably chose not to um, have a replay for obvious reasons. I kind of did the same because it was just you at the time. Like I, I probably feel more comfortable if they played a replay now. Now that we know that it's not as bad as we'd, you know, that it could have been. But I think at the time, without knowing you know, where that could have gone and literally could have been anything like, yeah, it it just could have been anything. So it was probably better. I just made the decision not to do it just in case because yeah, you just don't know if that's potentially a career ending, you know, horrible injury or something like that. But effectively saw it happen. Uh, He went in the air cast, sort of came off. Uh, There were reports from the sideline, you know, both on Channel 9 and uh, Fox about potential, like, suspected compound fracture. Now, people, and or or open fracture, so in other words, the the bone piercing the skin. Now, a few people ask, sort of, how does that get misdiagnosed or how does it... And, look, I, I don't know for certain, but I'd say effectively what has happened... Obviously, when it fra- like when it happens, they're not taking the shoe or the sock off or anything like that. They're putting it straight in the air cast. By the sounds of it, the the sideline commentary team get over to the doctors relatively quickly after injuries have occurred. So, look, there was a fair, and if you do see the replay, which I have watched from a distance, but you can see effectively he has what what I think now is a fractured dislocation of his of his lower lower leg or ankle because there is a fair bony deformity. So, in other words, his ankle looks like. You know, it's all over the place. Um, if they've seen that as, you know, treating medical professionals, they've seen it, they've seen a big bony deformity, they've probably just turned to the sideline commentary and just been like, oh, look, we think it potentially could be a compound or, a, or an open fracture. Uh, we're not sure, but we're going to, you know, go away and check it and blah, blah, blah. And then obviously once they've taken the shoe and sock off, they've seen that, oh, thankfully, it's just a really deformed ankle that hasn't broken the skin. Uh, the sideline commentary have probably taken that, run with it and said, you know, it's a compound fracture, blah, blah, blah. And that's how it kind of got on my page and then out into the, you know, into the Twitter sphere and all the posts and all that kind of stuff. But yeah, I'd, I'd say that's how that confusion came about. So, um, but yeah, like pretty much everything since then, and it's really hard to say this in, in such a serious injury, but it's kind of been best case scenario, certainly from my expectations. Uh, it came out sort of later that night that they were thinking it wasn't as bad as they thought. Then the next morning, or there was a report that night, it might not be compound, it might not be an open fracture. Then the next morning that was confirmed. And then post-surgery, we haven't, and I'll stress, we have not got the full details of exactly what it is. So there is a bit of educated guessing going on here, but that's a lot of what we do on this show and on my page is try and educate people on the information that we have because often we don't get all the information or we get limited information. So the one piece of information 
Um, there was a few tweets from reporters who said that they'd heard that it was only a fibula fracture. And then there was the report from the Daily Telegraph that only one plate was used in the surgery and a few screws. So for me, if there was only one plate used, and it's more than likely only one bone broken, and it was always going to be a fractured fibula, that was like the bare minimum it was going to be. It was just then, was there any... Involvement of the tibia, the ankle joint itself. So was there any joint surface involved, anything like that? Um, you know, was there an open fracture, all that kind of stuff. So the fact that they only use one plate and some screws, uh, all the messaging from the storm is better than expected, all that kind of stuff. I think at this stage we're dealing with a fibula fracture, syndesmosis injury, deltoid ligament injury. So your syndesmosis, your high ankle, when you fracture your ankle that significantly, you're going to tear your syndesmosis. You're going to tear your deltoid ligament as well because it. I suspect that he actually dislocated his ankle and fractured that fibula bone. So you're dealing with ligament damage. You're dealing with uh, obviously a fracture. There's potentially joint damage there, but with all of the messaging being like we're pretty positive he's gonna you know he's gonna be back in training in the new year all that kind of stuff fingers crossed but i i I think we're dealing with a relatively simple in inverted commas uh fracture of the fibula with the associated ligament damage so we've seen guys come back from that in like 12 weeks in the past like aiden tolman no not aiden tolman aiden guerra came back in 12 weeks is one that always comes to mind. I think he even came back in like 11 weeks or something like that and it looked like his ankle was dislocated and horribly broken and all that kind of stuff too. So, uh, yeah, I think that's where we're at at this stage is that uh, like that's kind of what I'm working under the proviso of. Um, We'll talk about in a second sort of, you know, uh, where, where he'll be with the different, you know, return to plays and stuff like that. But the usual range, I would say, is probably in that like three, if, if that's what it is, in that three to five month kind of range. Uh, so, you know, not, you know, career ending, not 12 months, you know, those kind of things, which were all on the table, I think, when it initially happened and we all sort of saw the footage. Uh, but yeah, mate, uh, what were you, did you sort of agree with that sort of assessment of, of what we've got so far and, and probably what we're dealing with? Yeah, it certainly seems that way, Brian. I tend to agree with you there. I guess, um, my, from, you know, the probably big giveaway is the amount of plates they use. That gives you a little bit of an indication of surgical techniques. So you can sort of try to use an educated guess around that. So that would probably be where I land on it. I guess the um, if you want to try and put your lotto ticket number in, I'd probably put my money on Weber C fracture. Generally speaking, you see Weber Cs that are a little bit higher up the fibula than lower. So I guess for the nerds out there with your Weber fibula classifications, I'd probably put my money on Weber C with probably syndesmosis injury on top of that. I guess deltoid's always hard to know because usually your fibula is going to go before your deltoid ligament goes. Um, so it's it's really that's that's sort of a bit of a coin flip type scenario there. But I think I agree with you in the sense that from all reports from, you know, when you see someone with a major ankle deformity, you do go to worst case scenario fairly quickly. But I think this is definitely trending in the right direction. So what we're going to do next, Brian, is talk specifically about Ryan Pappenhausen because we've been inundated with questions to the Magic Sponge. So thank you to everyone that's put those questions in. We're going to list off about sort of six or seven of them, Brian, because I think there's a lot of interest in this. There's a lot of people that want to pick your brain. So I'm just going to list them off for you 
um, one by one and I'll get you to sort of speak to them as we go. So first question is about the medical terminology. People say compound fracture, people say open fracture. What are we dealing with here? What is the terminology we should be using for the nerds um, and the non-nerds amongst us? Yeah, because every time I use compound, boy, do I get medical professionals both in my comments and my DMs telling me that I'm using an incorrect medical terminology. So I do apologize to any medical professionals out there. I get it. I know compound is old school. I know it's not the thing that's, you know, like if I'm writing in a medical journal or I'm, you know, even addressing like you know, open should be the way that we're moving in the future. I just think that the reason I choose to use it, it is is that it is so entrenched in footy culture that a lot of people know compound when they hear it and that's kind of the way that they go. I am definitely trying myself to move more towards open fracture and I think even though open is the correct medical terminology, I do think that it probably makes more sense in that when you say open, I think people will kind of know what you're talking about when you say open fracture. But yeah, I just, uh, because every, I just find it's a bit like plantar fasciitis, which, you know, people will say it should be called fasciopathy and, and all this kind of stuff. Now there are certain terminologies in and around those injury play, you know, I guess, uh, yeah, reporting that just whether it comes from an NRL club, whether it comes from reporters, uh, you know, journos, all that kind of stuff, they just seem to be entrenched. And compound seems to be entrenched and, and in footy vernacular, it seems to be tr- pretty entrenched. I am trying to move it in the uh, right direction, but yeah, just probably a little bit slower than a lot of them are. But effectively, both of them mean relatively the same thing, which means that the fracture has pierced the skin. Yeah, nice summary there. For the nerds as well on that one, Brian, there is a open fracture classification system if you're really nerdy, although I must say in all my time in a hospital, I've never seen it documented. You need to have that intraoperatively documented as well because they talk about like the size of how long it is and how much soft tissue damage there is. So if you don't see it in an operation report, you're probably not going to be able to do those sort of things. But that's just one for the nerds for them playing along. We're going to move to the next question. So in terms of his injury, it's the same leg as his knee injury. Do you think the two could be linked in any way in terms of increased um, recovery time, risk of reoccurrence in the future, or do you think they're very mutually exclusive injuries that he sustained? No, I think like it, it'll definitely affect his uh, like recovery time, I think, because his leg, by his own admission, wasn't quite back to 100% yet. So that will, I think not necessarily for his ankle as such, but more to make sure, because he would have been doing a lot of continuing rehab on that knee for the patella fracture. So now, obviously, with the ankle, that will limit his ability to run, to walk, you know, do all those things, do a lot of exercise over the next couple of months. So you worry that that results in a devolving of the progress that he's got in the knee. So I'm definitely thinking that that it's going to be a bit more of a gradual recovery time considering he has the knee to think about there. Risk of future recurrence, I'm not really worried about recurrence of either of those injuries because they're both traumatic injuries. They're both injuries that were just fluke occurrences. He copped a, you know, copped a knee and then copped a, you know, front row falling on his ankle. So, like, in terms of reoccurrence of those injuries, not really. It's other issues that I'd be concerned about. So, you know, does he then start to get recurring calf strains because his calf is working harder 
you know, because his ankle and his knee aren't quite up to scratch or hamstring strains or does he get some Achilles tendinopathy because things are working? So I think it's more risk of other injuries as opposed to reoccurrence of the two injuries that he's dealing with. Very good, Brian. We're going to go to the next question. I guess this is the million-dollar question that Storm fans want to know about. If you think his rehab goes per schedule, do you think he'll be right by round one next year? Yeah, so I'm just having a look. I think round one's about six months. I think... Like rehab would have to go like his knee for him to not be available. And when I say like his knee, like pretty poorly because or, or very gradual. Because as I said, that usual range is probably like most guys are back at around that three-month mark. But I think for him, because of his history and all that kind of stuff, I'd say sort of three to five months, like you give him those extra two months. And also because we don't know exactly what it is, that's the other thing. Um, but yeah, I, I'm still optimistic, like I'd say I'm probably, you know, 75% confident that he'll be available for round one next year. Where where do you sit with that? It's a good question. I was just, in my head, I was just thinking, I wonder what they do hardware-wise with his patella versus his ankle now in the short, medium and long term. Like, do they look at, you know, while he's rehabbing the ankle, do they do hardware removal with the patella? How long do they want to leave that in for? How long do they leave the ankle in for? Uh, th- those are those are very interesting questions for me. I I would put my money on him being back for round one, but I think just given the almost like consecutive natures of the injuries and with the hardware that he's got in there, I know Tedesco was one in the past that had a patella sort of hardware removal and that sort of helped him along a little bit. I don't know if they'll do that the same for Pappenhausen or not. And I think with the patella rehab he had, obviously that was complicated, but I, I feel like that was a more complicated fracture and a more complicated Injury to rehab, whereas this one, from what it sounds, seems a little bit more straightforward. But again, where I've only got, you know, minimal detail on this. It happened on the Friday. He's only just through surgery now. We don't know too much more about it than that. So I think as it lands, I'd probably put it in for, for round one. I'd pencil him in. But my thinking would be I'd, I'd be curious about what they do in terms of hardware in, hardware out, particularly with cinders, most of, you know, tightrope or screw or fibula plate and those type of things. Um, I'm not too sure what they want to do and their reasoning for that. So that's probably where I would sit on that one. Um, the next question, Brian, we'll move forward because this question is about Jarrell Yeo. I think that's where everyone's brain went to, I guess. Mm. They were playing the Broncos, so maybe that sort of activated people's PTSD when they saw someone else on the ground with a foot deformity um, and an obvious fracture in that sort of case. So you mentioned Jarrell's fracture was almost the worst case scenario. Why was his injury worse than most other compound or open fractures that we've seen in the past? Yeah, so I think that's the first thing is that uh, the fact that Gerald's was open or compound was the first thing. So uh, you would have seen or whether you noticed, but certainly my vibe and my mood towards the injury changed significantly when we found out that it hadn't broken the skin. Like when that came through, I felt way better. Before that, I was freaking out myself like I was sitting on the couch I think I did a Twitter live video at about 11 o'clock at night after it and I was just shattered because I'm like oh man this could be anything uh but as soon as it doesn't break the skin it's just that risk of infection and in regards to Jarrell Yaoyi that is what happened and what made it a lot worse is not only did he have the open fracture there but it got infected and not only did it get infected, the tissue around it got infected. He was saying, you know, he was looking down and there was skin like, t- like muscle tissue falling off 
around the ankle and all this kind of stuff. If if you if you haven't listened to it yet, it's worth going back last year. We did a, an interview. It was about two hours long with him last year on the podcast. Uh, yeah, just, just horrific stuff that he went through from a medical standpoint in terms of infection, and that's what made it worse than others. Was that he pretty much had yeah possibly the worst case of infection uh that i've i've heard of in an in an nrl sense um had to get you know tissue grafts from his i think it was his buttock or his thigh sort of brought down to try and sort of do some transplants and stuff like that so yeah that it was the infection side of things yeah i think that's a really nice point you make about that interview that you did with him brian it's a really really good listen i think from my memory as well jarrell spoke very specifically about where the fracture was open was on sort of like that inside part of his lower ankle, which I guess if you sort of feel that part of your skin yourself, it's very thin in around that sort of that lower part of your inside of your ankle in around your heel there. So he had grafts in there, which he had issues with. I think he had delays in his closure as well because the swelling got too big. They couldn't close him straight away. He had risk of infection. He had risk with, um, you know, graft, you know, not taking and things like that. So Gerald's was almost one thing on top of the other thing on top of the other thing on top of the other thing, which sort of led to, um, I guess, him sort of retiring from the game of footy, which was obviously awful to see. But I guess because Ryan Pappenhausen doesn't have the open nature of that fracture, that hopefully um, is, is a very, very, very helpful thing. Obviously, they still need to open you up when they reduce the fracture, when they do the surgery. But the fact he is not at risk of infection before that happens is enormously positive. So that's a really good thing. Next question, Brian, was about... The fibula being a non-weight bearing bone and there's no tibial shaft fracture, do you think that might factor into a quicker recovery than a like a tib-fib break or does the associated high ankle ligament injury complicate his rehab potentially here? Yeah, so no tib- tibial fracture is is a significant thing. Uh, the fact, like if he can have avoided, uh, t- the two things for me was a tibia fracture and a joint surface fracture. Like if he can avoid those two things or a Taylor dome fracture, which yeah. is the bottom part of your ankle, um, that your two leg bones sit down on. If you avoid damage in that joint and you avoid damage on the main weight bearing bone of your lower leg, which is your tibia, that shortens your recovery quite significantly. Like a good example is Sean Fensom from the grand final. I think we all remember that. He snapped both leg bones in two. Uh, even though his stayed in the skin, all that kind of stuff, it t- still took him like six months to come back. So it was quite significant. And then even then he probably wasn't quite at 100% when he came back. And I think while obviously it was significant trauma, I, I always find, and I don't know whether there's any literature on this, but I've found in patients that I've dealt with, as soon as you start adding the tibia in, it just, yeah, blows things out. It makes things a lot tougher to predict. Uh, in terms of the syndesmosis ligament stuff, that's not all that big a deal. Like we spoke about the deltoid ligament stuff before, not knowing like the the ligament stuff for me isn't major because at the end of the day if you have a ligament injury on its own uh like a syndesmosis like they tightrope it and they're back relatively quickly i think it obviously plays a role but it's it's just the injury as a whole i think they all kind of contribute pretty equally uh so i wouldn't say that the syndesmosis injury complicates rehab all that much yeah, I think if you said to me what would be your least three favourite bony parts of your body to fracture, it would probably be talus, calcaneus, and tibia. 
like straight up for me. I think if you had either one of those three, I would say, no, thank you. See you later. Um, so I think the fact he doesn't have a tibial fracture there is a definitely a good thing because you, you, you do make a good point about them sometimes being slower and longer. I found just clinically, and this is purely anecdotally, Taylor fractures are a nightmare. They seem to be so, so tender for a bloody long time. They're really hard to rehab. Calcaneal fractures as well are, are pretty difficult, but the Taylor ones are nearly nearly the worst out of, out of the lot in, in the foot and ankle as such. Um, next question, Brian, was about Ryan Pappenhausen and his gait or his, uh, even just his hip or leg anatomy. Do you think this makes him potentially more susceptible to lower limb soft tissue injuries in the future that might be affected by low distribution or do you think he's just had a lot of bad luck over the year with soft tissue injuries and now these traumatic uh, fractures? Yeah, look, I included this question because I, before his big injuries, like I think he'd had maybe a couple of hamstring issues, but most of his issues have been traumatic. And and I think like obviously you can go to his frame, you know, he's a bit slender, all that kind of stuff. But like you had his PCL injury, which was probably a big significant one. It was a contact injury, so knee into the ground. Then you had his patella fracture, which was... <coughs> pardon me, knee to knee. So, you know, another, and then the one last night, which was contact. So before now, I didn't, it it wasn't something that even crossed my mind, to be honest, was his running gait or leg anatomy or anything like that. Like I, I wouldn't have said that he had a heap of hamstring and calf issues. That might be me viewing him with rose tinted glasses. I'm not sure if I'm not remembering any, but for me, a lot of his stuff has been more contact stuff uh, rather than, you know, low distribution, those kind of things. So, yeah, I, I think moving forward, on the other hand, like I'm going to be watching his running gait very closely because, as I said, I'm kind of more concerned now about those compensation-type injuries considering he's had two issues on the one leg. Uh, but, yeah, it hasn't really been a concern for me so far. I don't know. Have you, did you notice anything before this or are you kind of similar to me? Yeah, I, I sort of sit in the cab that I'll, I don't get too hung up on someone's running gait, to be honest, Brian. Like it it sort of is a – I sort of discount that quite a lot because I think, interestingly, these two names jumped in my head about this one was obviously Pappenhausen now. This has come up. Tommy Turbo this came up with and James Tedesco as well. So we think back to those guys early on. Is it to do with their running gait? Is it to do with their pattern? But we only ask this question after the injury is sustained. We don't have any problem with it beforehand. So, look – I, I don't know if that's an overblown thing or if that's just me in the camp of I don't think the gait and how that happens is the biggest issue. My sort of predictor is, well, what's what are the things that they do a lot of? It's it's high-intensity sprinting, which is just your biggest risk factor to any of those soft tissue injuries. You look at, you know, elite, even elite sprinters, like they have these these issues and that's all they do. That's all they do. They're, you know, like the Usain Bolts and the Owen Blakes and all those sort of like they have soft tissue injuries as well. So I'm probably not as concerned about this. So I suppose, you know, it's probably more a conditioning thing, isn't it? Those conditioning type issues where it might be recurrent hamstrings or recurrent calves, um, you know, thinking about Latrell Mitchell, who we'll sort of touch on a little bit later as well. It seems to be sort of a recurrence there with soft tissue injuries potentially stacking up. Next question is about bone density, Brian. So would you question either osteopenia from sort of prolonged um, immobilization or calcium deficiency? You know, this question says he still had significant atrophy in the quad when he came back. I don't know if that was the case or not. Would, I guess, bone density issues be problematic there because um, of minimal weight bearing for a period of time after Patel? What do you reckon about that? It's an interesting question. Yeah, look, like it's an interesting question, but from my perspective, yeah, the the answer is no. Like I, I just don't. 
I would be shocked. Like the the two, I think people jump to like I see it all the time of like Jack Whiten, you know, came away undamaged, like in the knee to knee contact, and perhaps it broke his patella apart. Like how is that possible? And I think we addressed it at the time, but like it just depends where you get hit. Like perhaps just got hit flush on the top of the patella, whereas like Whiten it was more like the top of his knee or like his knee was sort of driving through. So it's just like a car accident, right? Like a car accident, sometimes two cars can, you know, smash into each other head on and one person walks out of the car and the other one, you know, is deceased, like passed away. So like in these kind of cases, I think we're, it's definitely too results driven and sort of being like trying to find something to blame a bit like to your point, just, just on the last question, like that, he plays a high level sport where guys run at each other at full speed. You know, he is a little bit lighter, so potentially you could say that you know he his frame, you know, could be more susceptible to bigger forces getting into it. But once you start talking about like calcium deficiency, osteopenia. Um, you know, significant atrophy in the quad. Like, I don't even think that was the case. Like, bone density, all that kind of stuff. Like, it's literally just he's been caught in some really bad spots. Um, you know, like, especially the one the other night. Like, I've said it time and time again, and we'll address it soon in another question. But Nelson Asofa Solomona falling on your leg like that is going to snap 99.99% of people's legs. That's just so, yeah, I think the concerns beyond that, I think, are unfounded. Very good, Brian. We've got two more here that I'm just going to sort of group together because they're fairly similar in their nature. But um, the first one is about what extent do his other previous injuries contribute to risk of further injury? I guess this one's a freak injury. Are there any issues with lack of confidence, unconscious bias, muscle imbalances when sort of reacting to things, et cetera, things like that? Do you have any concerns about injury risk in the future we've sort of have already yeah i was gonna say i think think we've already done that i think the big thing there that we probably haven't spoken about is the the lack of confidence and the mental side of things like I, i really think that's a a huge part to this injury like these nrl players are built different right like a lot of the guys and like i've spoken to tommy turbo like after he suffered his fourth hamstring injury and he like you know just talking to him he's just like yeah no I'm sweet like I'll be fine when I get back like it's just not and so a lot of these guys are just wired to be like I'm sweet I'm a high level athlete at the peak of my powers like I'm gonna be fine I do think like perhaps has even spoken about the mental challenges of his patella and throwing this on top. Like I I think his mental welfare over the coming months is going to be huge. And then also his, um, yeah, his confidence when he returns. So I think the mental battle is going to be, you know, just as big as that physical battle in rehab over the next little bit. Lucky last, Brian. Do you think um, this question is? Do you think he was brought back too early, or do you think he should have stayed in reserve grade and prepared for next year? This person said, "I am not the only one thinking this." What do you think about his return to play there? My my take on that is he was he looked pretty good in Queensland Cup, and he looked really good up until he had his ankle broken. I don't think this was a question until this freak injury happened. To be honest, wasn't it? Mate, I had to put a tweet out about this because I just it was doing my head in. Like I like I was scrolling through a few comments. I try and stay out of the comments a lot of the time because like I just it does my head in. And of course, here I went to the comments because I was sitting there depressed about Pappenhausen and. 
it just made me more frustrated and depressed because anybody trying to spin this as like Melbourne brought him back too early or he, like he wasn't ready, like they were so cautious with him. Like they, they held him back throughout the whole – they held him back for, you know, three or four months longer than a lot of patella fractures would come back. A lot of them come back in that three to four-month mark. And he like, – well, three to six-month mark, sorry, I should say. He didn't come back till after 12 months. So, look, I'm not saying he was at 100%, but as you said, he looked good in Queensland Cup. He was playing quite well. He played really well against the Broncos the week before, like really well. Yeah, great. Like, you know, so those kind of things, blaming different if he was out there sprinting and like tore his hamstring off the bone or something like that. You could absolutely have that discussion. It's like, was his conditioning not good enough? All that kind of stuff. At the end of the day, once again, Nelson Sofa Solomona fell on his leg from the side. He Nelson was beaten and he was kind of just trying to affect a tackle and just threw him threw his body in there pretty loosely and just took out Paps's ankle. It got caught in the wrong angle, just one of those things. It's gonna break so many people's ankles. It could have been Harry Grant and we wouldn't even be having this conversation, right? It just could have happened to anyone. So I think that is just, yeah, it's stu- like it's not stupid. I shouldn't say stupid, but it's just a, a, yeah, not a correct way of thinking for that kind of thing. But, and I, I think I'll throw to you because you had a few good points on this. Like, I definitely think there is a discussion about whether he should have been playing in the middle coming back from such an injury because we spoke a lot about Kalen Ponga playing out of position at six to start out the year and how we didn't agree with it because you're putting a player back in a position where they don't have natural instincts. Uh, I'm sure you like, and, and I completely agree with what you were saying off air, but yeah, like what's your take on that? Yeah, look, this is a. I'll keep it as minimally tinfoily as possible, Brian, to use that vernacular there straight out of the gate. So I'm not sort of trying to be accusatory about anything here, but I was just curious because towards the end of that game, and it was messy because there were so many substitutions with the storm. There was injuries happening, there was HIAs happening, there was people coming and going. Again, I had the Broncos coloured glasses on, so I was just enjoying and lapping that up and soaking that adrenaline through my veins. But I was just curious about Ryan Pappenhausen's tackle count in this game. When Fox flashed it up on the screen just before his injury or just after his injury, I think they mentioned that he had he made about 12 tackles, give or take, in that sort of ballpark. Again, I might not be completely accurate there, but I just saw that and I was curious and I went, well, that seems a high amount of tackles for someone to be making at fullback. And then obviously and then I thought, well, Paps has been injured here playing in the middle. And again, fullbacks do defend in the middle when they're on the goal line. They do defend in the line. I can appreciate it as well. But there was a bit of time there where Ryan Pappenhausen was playing in the middle. And I just I, I just questioned that a little bit. I just wondered, the Broncos are up 20 nil. You know, you, you sort of queue in the rack scenario there. I know you don't want to give up until the ghost is gone. But I think Melbourne being down that far, Ryan Pappenhausen playing in the middle, is is that the best thing for him to do, especially because Meany was still taking bombs at fullback. So Meany was still on the field in fullback position and Pappenhausen playing elsewhere. I just found that curious that he wasn't at fullback. So I'm not saying that him playing where he was playing caused his injury. I just think like we went on about ad nauseum towards the start of this year about Caelan Ponga playing six instead of playing at one, I was just curious about Ryan Pappenhausen and his tackle numbers and a lot of time that he spent in the middle. On review of his tackle counts in seasons gone by, he hasn't made that many tackles for more than three years. So that's, to me, a little bit interesting in that 
you've got a guy here who's not long returned from, you know, a very serious injury and he's playing a position he's probably not as familiar with or as comfortable with. And maybe that's Pappenhausen being a team player. Maybe he was there because other guys needed to spread out on the wing. You know, they're probably playing, you know, back rows in the centres, centres on the wing, things like that. So I'm not too sure about how the rotation looked. But I just think when we looked at his – when I saw his tackle count come up, I was a little bit curious about – why are we putting a guy like this in the middle to do the donkey work when, you know, he's, he's coming back from something like this and it's not his position. It hasn't been his position. I just, I didn't really, I wouldn't say it's a full on ick for me. It didn't give me the ick in my stomach, but there was just enough of me to just have a bit of a, just a bit of a side eye glare. I was getting a bit of crow's feet in my eyes, just going, mm, I don't know about that. It was just a bit of a, a squint going on there. Um, did you have any thoughts on, on that sort of topic, Brian? I know I'm probably down the conspiracy rabbit hole again on my own on this one. Did you have any other things that you wanted to add in that space? No, mate, I think I think you're absolutely right. I think a player, like I talk about it, we spoke about it all the time with Kalen, and I don't think it's probably as severe as the Kalen one because they're just trying to, you know, dip his toe in the water and play him for a couple of minutes and get his, and they had a plan for him and a role for him and all that kind of stuff. But at the end of the day, this guy's coming back off 12 months out of the game like once again, I probably want to put him back out there in a position where he is just, he goes out there and he knows exactly what he's doing. And I like, I know he would have trained in the middle and, and done all that kind of stuff, but he's played fullback at such a high level for the last three, four years. I just don't see how you don't throw him back out there in a position that he knows. And I'm not for one minute trying to suggest that this has caused his injury. Now, in saying that, you know, making 12 tackles in, I think he played 30-odd minutes or something like that, uh, like, obviously, the more tackles he's involved in, the more likely, you know, he is being exposed to something like this, just from pure numbers. But, like, he also could have had this happen, as you say, defending in the middle playing fullback where he on the line you just defend in the middle. So yeah. I don't I, I'm not sitting here as you say like saying oh that's the reason. I just still sort of sit there and go I, I just don't see why you wouldn't I know Nick Meany's good at the back but I don't know why especially with the game he played the week before why you wouldn't just put him at fullback and find a plan for Meany as opposed to pl- finding a fan, a plan for Pappenhausen. And that's about as critical as I'll get of Craig Bellamy, like nearly the greatest coach of all time. <laughs> oh, well, yeah, I think he's at the top of the apex there in terms of coaching all time, isn't he? And I, I think it was just it was just the, the number there and, and it just made me a little bit curious about, you know, how much work he was doing there, Brian. And, again, I, I'm sort of on the same, you know, line of chatting away about this is you. I, I just found it curious more than anything else. And again, I'm normally more deeper into conspiracies. I don't think this is a full-blown conspiracy at all. I think this is just something that was an interesting topic um, in a guy who sadly sustained just a freakish accidental injury. And, and all the best of Ryan Pappenhausen on behalf of the Magic Sponge. He's a friend of the show. We've talked about him a lot. Hopefully we don't have to talk about him too much. In 2024, hopefully he comes back fit and firing and he's doing his thing. Brian, we're going to move on to the other NRL games that transpired this week just gone. So Panthers v Warriors was this game. Sean Johnson with a calf ruled out pre-game. He looks probable for this week coming, doesn't he? Yeah, yeah. So I think they are actually pretty hopeful 
of having him for this week. I think Andrew Webster said, you know, he got on. Actually, that was interesting that they flew him. Like, the the fact that he flew over for the game, I know you kind of want to be there for the team and all that kind of stuff, but flying with a calf, it was anything significant, you just wouldn't fly him. Like, yeah. I, I, I was – the fact that he flew and then got ruled out says to me that they really thought that he was going to be right and then obviously just didn't, you know, the nature of those calves, they can linger. So – Look, he, he got ruled out. I just think they play him this week because it's do or die. I know someone we're going to talk about in a second, Joey Manu, that didn't work out so well. But I'll also talk about with Joey Manu why I think it's a risk worth taking at this time of year. Uh, so, yeah, I, I think I would expect it would have to be a significant, like, textbook calf in terms of, like, lingering symptoms or or he, he aggravates it or, like, damages it further in training this week. I think we'll see him next week. But he will – I think he'll still be at an increased risk of re-injury. Good shout. Roosters v Sharks was the next one, Brian. So if you were to get through here, Joey Manu hamstring, pretty textbook hamstring reoccurrence there for Joey Manu, wasn't it? Joey Suoli'i with concussion. He was ruled out at half time, so he didn't take the field back in the second half. Sam Walker had an injury. To my eyes, it looked like um, opposing knee into his shin on his same knee. So I almost thought it was a bit of like – I don't even know, it's like a shin cork, but it, it looked like he just got cracked in the shin from my point of view. He was favouring that knee, which was taped up, which he's had the previous ACL sprain in, um, maybe concerned for an ankle there. But to my naked eye, it probably looked more like a contact sort of type injury. Billy Smith, a little bit of word there that he might have sustained a jaw injury out of this game. And then Dan Tupo was ruled out with a PCL injury, but there might be possibility of him lining up next week, maybe, Brian. Yeah, so we'll start with Joey Manu. The big thing, obviously, look, as you said, straight out of the textbook, hamstring injuries, we talk about it all the time, you know, biggest risk. The risk is over 10%. The stats tell us it's, it's between 10 to 12% in the first two weeks back. Uh, players will re-injure their hamstrings, and that's elite athletes. So, yeah, like straight out of the textbook. The one thing I want to say about this, like he... he will very unlikely to play this week this week like 99.9% he won't play this week uh, because the one thing I want to challenge there and Trent Robertson sort of came out in the post match pressure and said we got that wrong like you know we got that wrong we uh, like we erred in playing him I I just I sat there and I thought I disagree with that I, I, like I know it's a like the result is yes Joey Manu re-injured his hamstring but at the end of the day when you're dealing with those kind of games where there's a lot on the line and all that kind of stuff and Joey Manu looked fantastic he looks really good up until yeah. that point like he looked yep. awesome so uh, like he, he as he and and um Trent Roberts has said like he looked fantastic at training during the week all that kind of stuff like my argument is is this is this is the nature of hamstring injuries is that you look fantastic you feel fantastic unfortunately the re-injury rate is still there right but like maybe during the season you could say, okay, we got it wrong. Like we should have kept him another week, even though he looked fantastic. But at this time of year, mate, if he looks fantastic in training, he's ticking all the boxes. I don't think holding him back 
on the off chance that you win the game. Because there's every chance, like Joey Money scored a try, right? Like there's every chance, and it was a pretty straightforward try, but there's every chance they lose that game if Joey Money doesn't play. You don't know. So, like for me, I just don't think they got it wrong. I think it was just like one of those things where, yes, he did re-injure his hamstring, uh, but I'm a process over results kind of guy when it comes to this kind of stuff. I'm like, if you follow the process and you do everything right and then – you know, the thing that was less likely to happen because at the end of the day, you're looking at that percentage of 10 to 12% re-injury risk. That's still a 90% chance that he gets through that game, right? So you still got the odds well and truly in your favor. So I just feel like, yeah, I, I feel like he was probably being a bit too harsh on himself there. I'm Like, before I move on to the other guys, how do you feel about that? Like, are you, Yeah, like, totally agree. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah I, I wouldn't have any other things to add no. there. I thought Joey was good. You know, it happened. It is what it is. But I agree with you. I think the Roosters live to fight another day next week. And they're playing against the Melbourne Storm. They're not a bad shake in that game, albeit down in Melbourne. Melbourne are, are fairly wounded. So I think they're, they're every bit of a chance next week. I wouldn't say the Roosters are dead and buried by any stretch of the imagination, even going on the road down to Melbourne. Melbourne obviously a lot better down there. But, you know, and, and the Roosters have a bit of an injury sort of contingent as well. But... Tell you what, Sammy Walker's looking pretty good, <laughs> FYI. Just just thought I'd drop that one in there. One of my preseason favourites and uh, someone who I'll return back to. But to me, I think they made the right decision with Joey Manu um, and bringing Sam Walker back as well, obviously. Yeah, so, uh, yeah, like I completely agree. I just think, yeah, it's an unfortunate thing. Joseph Suwali'i with a concussion. Look, like the big thing here... I was, if I was ripping my hair out about certain things about the Paps thing, I was like nearly dunking my head like underwater and screaming about this because this is the apex, the peak of Mount Everest in terms of what I've been banging on about all year, about how confusing and the downsides to classifying concussions into these different categories and like is it a category one is it a category two the nrl also has this category three which a lot of people hadn't heard about it's not in the written rules but effectively a category three is a situation it's not a concussion it's a situation where a player has had a a heavy knock they haven't shown any category one or category two signs but they are labeled a category three situation which is just we're going to continue to monitor that guy because you know of what's gone on now even in this kind of case that that wasn't what's happened because it was only because Joey Money came to them at halftime and said look I've got some concussion symptoms they didn't even really know by all accounts that he'd had a blow but effectively category three means like you can determine it as it's it's a concussion situation that has happened where there were no obvious symptoms to start with. There was no Category 1 or Category 2 signs at the beginning, so Category 3 is always when it comes later. But, oh, my God, the people who are like, oh, it's Category 3, it, it doesn't qualify for any of the rules because it's Category 3, because it's delayed. Now, I will give people credit because I sat there and watched post-match on both Fox and Channel 9, and they both got it wrong too. Like, there was a lot of, like, you know, on one of the channels, it was like, yep, we're, you know, talking to the medical staff, and they're talking about ways of they're going to challenge this. And the other one was like, yep, he, 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 you know, as long as he doesn't have symptoms in 24 hours, he should be right to play next week and all this kind of stuff. 
But it was it was pretty simple. As soon as he suffered a concussion and a failed HIA is effectively a concussion, which he did fail HIA, showed concussion symptoms, failed his HIA at half time. As soon as he suffers that, yes, category one, category two, all that kind of stuff. But even if he was category two, which category two is a is a situation that can usually challenge, you know, the the thing and come back before 11 days. That doesn't, once you've had two concussions in three months, category one, two, three, 17, 18, whatever category you want, as soon as you have two concussions in three months, you cannot come back before 11 days. It is that simple. It's the same if you've had more than five concussions in your career. It's all this kind of stuff. So, like, there's just so much confusion. It is as clear as mud. I understand why people are confused. But I feel for, like, that's why I'm really hesitant about posting about it now because it's just all so murky. But, like, poor old, and like, I think he's a great journo, Scott Bailey. And he sort of put out there, you know, he, he's really good with sort of chasing this stuff up and all that kind of stuff. And the amount of abuse he copped in his replies, being like, no, you're wrong. It's a category three. They're fine. Like, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, oh my God, this is what... And I see it in my clinic. Like, I'm I'm genuinely not lying when I tell you I've probably had four or five parents come in this year talking to me about their son or daughter who plays footy being like, oh, it's only a, it was only a category two concussion, so, like, he'll be fine, like, really quick. Like, he'll be fine for next week, right? And I'm just putting my head through the wall in my clinic going far out. Like this is just, yeah. So anyway, I won't go on too long about that side of things, but yeah, I just think once it's a concussion, it's a concussion in regards to, it's not just about the categories. There's a whole lot of other criteria that they need to fulfill. I totally agree with you with Sammy Walker. I thought initially it was a contact issue. The only reason I put ankle on the run sheet is that Robbo was talking about ankle the entire time but I definitely thought it looked knee um he copped a blow to his knee that he already had strapped up um but look it sounds like he'll be fine Billy Smith with his jaw I just put that in there because I've heard that the Roosters potentially are going to lose another player for the year potentially with a fractured jaw and Billy Smith was the one who got hit in the jaw so I mean everybody's probably going to be listening to this tomorrow so hopefully that mail is off because they definitely Definitely need Billy Smith um, with all their injuries, but potentially they could really be down on troops next week. Also because Daniel Tupo, by all accounts, is not due back next week, and that kind of matches with what we thought with that PCL injury. Very good. The Sharkies there I haven't talked about yet, Brian, but Braden hamlin Welly was ruled out with a knee injury in the lead-up to that game. Then Tom Hazleton was reported as an abdominal tear a fair bit of concern around Tom Hazelton on the coverage in that they said he was rushed to hospital um, at, at the time or something like that. So I'm not too sure what he would have been dealing with there. I don't know if he would be similar to a, you know, a Charlie Staines with like a, um, like, was he a bowel rupture? I think was a perforation. Um, yeah. he's, he, he perforation, sorry. Yeah, my, my bad. Um I don't know. Is there any detail you've heard about Tom Hazard? He's probably the more interesting of the two, isn't he? Yeah, mate. Uh, not much to say on Hamlin Uelli, uh Minimal details. The Hazelton one for me was another one that was really strange because I went back because um, there was obviously so much going on with the Roosters. I just didn't get a chance to really, um, you know, look at it. But I looked at it this afternoon and it was just a regulation tackle. Like he just kind of front on. It was a pretty heavy tackle. Like, you know, the contact was pretty heavy. But if you had to ask me just off the footage, I would have said, oh, like it's a sternum injury he's fractured a rib or something like that. 
but they they kept saying abdominal tear. They said abdominal tear on the mm. on the coverage. They said abdominal tear post match as well. It just didn't really like. I don't know whether he's torn his abdominal from like contact, like you know whether an elbow's gone in and torn. Like it would be such a weird mechanism of injury. The only one I can think of was Braden Burns had one similar earlier this year where he kind of copped something in the front and they just labelled that an abdominal injury as well. But I was certainly more thinking like some sort of internal organ thing for Hazleton yeah. was where I kind of went or, you know, whether he fractured a rib and, you know, punctured a lung. Or like, I don't want to sensationalise things, so I'm not saying that anything like that has happened. But it just was a weird mechanism for an abdominal tear and then, like, they're taking him to hospital for an abdominal tear. Like, Braden Burns came out after tearing his abdominal and sat on the bench. So, yeah, like, we haven't heard any more on that, but there's definitely, as you said, some increased concern there. Yeah, the only one that's sort of a, I guess, a big emergency is like that splenic sort of tear or splenic sort of injury. Where's your spleen? It's on your left side of your yeah, stomach. And, so if you got yeah. hit, if you got hit left side, then you might be a bit suspicious, and that would be obviously a medical emergency. I'm actually not too sure how that would present acutely either, Brian. So that's probably a little bit out of my realm. But yeah, you'd probably think maybe it's an internal. Um, injury there that he might be sort of more more worried about. Moving forward to the next game, so Knights v Raiders. This was a barnstormer of a game, actually. Um, so good to watch as a neutral fan. The two Knights we're going to talk about first, Jackson Hastings with the ankle injury. We talked about that extensively in lead-up. And then also Callum Ponga in the 88th minute of this game was a, a head knock that looked a little bit suspicious to my naked eye there. Do you want to talk to those two guys first, Brian? Yeah, so Hastings was unable to come back out after halftime. So he obviously aggravated that ankle issue. We spoke about it last week where all that I'd heard was that it was worse. It was not responding as well as they initially hoped. And he was actually dealing with sort of probably more damage than than you know they initially thought as well. So I, I was actually like a little bit surprised that he got up for the game and he was able to play. But yeah, obviously didn't last long, unfortunately, and look very unlikely for next week, it yeah. sounds like. I actually I did see that, Brian. So I think, did you see Hastings when he got sort of hit? I think it was later in the first half. So he passed the ball and his sort of foot was in the air and he sort of got kneed on the outside part of his lateral ankle. So it was purely... It was just an indirect knee. It was completely accidental, but obviously right over the top of either that plate or whether he's got an underlying fracture or something like that. He was not in a good way. He was, you could tell it was hurting him massively. Tried to play on. He was pretty, you know, pretty, pretty knocked up with that, unfortunately, for, for Jackson. So, yeah, he'll, he, he looks like he'll be racing the clock for next week if, if he's lucky at best, wouldn't he? Yeah, and that's exactly right. I think, like, you know, him going out there, he looked relatively okay steering the side around at the start. But, yeah, to cop a blow like that to the ankle, I think, yeah, yeah it's no surprise that he was knocked around. And then Caelan Pong with a head knock. I've had so many questions on this. Look, I, I mean, I can almost just not talk and go and get the, the you know, 10-minute rant that I had earlier in the year of, like, I've never seen a guy get, like, he's had that many concussions, yes, but I've never seen a guy get hit around the head so many times and, like, also not have a HIA or not go off, you know, like, not have a concussion and all that kind of stuff or not be diagnosed for a concussion. Once again, I'm not accusing anyone of any, you know, untowardness. He just, yeah, he seems to get rocked a lot and and it not 
come to anything. And I think, you know, whether he suffered a concussion or not, which, look, I think, you know, like I'd argue if that happened in the third minute, he probably comes off for a HIA. Like there was only a couple of minutes ago. Did the bunker have enough, like, cause there's the independent doctor. Did the independent doctor have enough time to kind of, you know, look at that and drag him off before the game finished. We all know that players often after those heavy knocks, you know, stay on for a minute or two and then eventually yeah. the whistle blows and yep. Okay. That guy's got to come off cause the independent doctor. So, you know, there's that side of things as well, but I just, for me, the worry for Kalen, regardless of whether he comes off, you know, with a concussion or not, it's just this accumulative, you know, f- like load on his brain. He just keeps getting hit, hit in the head. It keeps happening time and time again. And it's really, like, for me, that's really concerning. Whether, whether and, and we know, I think, like, I even myself, if you spoke to me 12 months ago, I was very focused on concussions. Does the player have a concussion? That's really concerning. And don't get me wrong, I still am. But a lot of the evidence, and Dr. Alan Pierce, he's, like, so wonderful with this kind of stuff and helps me out with a lot of things. And, and he's pointed me towards all this recent research coming out that it's it's about that cumulative load as much like way more than number of concussions. So, look, the, the simple question people want to ask: Why didn't he go off for a HIA? Like, I think without getting ourselves into trouble, we like you know the the situation of the game, all that kind of stuff. It would have taken a very very brave anyone to sort of pull him off the field. Then I think you know did the independent doctor get enough time? to, uh, you know, to review it and that kind of thing. Uh, the, my simple answer to these all the time is that the reason he didn't come off is in the opinion of the of the club doctor, the club medical staff and the independent doctor. He did not show any signs of concussion. Now, you or I can agree with that, but unfortunately our, uh, this is the grey area and the nature of concussion assessments as it currently lies. It's all subjective. What I think might be different to what the guy next to me thinks, what you think, you know, what the doctor thinks. It's all subjective. So when things are subjective, it is really, really hard to be definitive, unfortunately. Yeah, I don't think we need to drill down to it too much more than that. I think people can draw their own conclusions from that, Brian, and I don't think what we say about it's going to sway one person or another the either way. So I think we can sort of leave it there. Last actually from the Knights, I didn't mention this, this gent, but Jaden Braley, he's going to go over to do some work with Bill Knowles in the USA. We've spoken about Bill Knowles fairly extensively on the Magic Sponge um, with various players in the past. What's Jaden Braley going over to see Bill Knowles for? Do you know any more detail about that, Brian? He's on the rehab journey from his ACL, isn't he? Yeah, mate. So he's probably getting towards end stage with his ACL. It's his second ACL on the one knee. So as we've seen, uh, you know, with guys who are dealing with those recurrent issues, we, we, it seems to be the in thing now or the thing to do, go over to Bill Knowles over in uh, the US and sort of, you know, go through his reconditioning course and all that kind of stuff. We've spoken about how we think it's, you know, probably a bit more than needs to happen considering the... The, the level of expertise in Australia. Like I think, I think it's enough to sort of send him, you know, to one of the many reconditioning or, you know, rehab experts in Australia who won't, you know, cost you an arm and a leg and, and, and all that kind of stuff. But I, I, yeah, I think, you know, 
any you turn over any stone in these kind of things and if they think it's getting a bit stale if they need some new information then fair enough but it's probably not something that i think is you know completely necessary for someone like braley or any of these guys but I think the most interesting thing, mate, and I like to give you an opportunity to put on the tinfoil hat, and I think this is actually a really, really good one because we've got the Madden curse over in the US, and for those who don't know what the Madden curse is, it's the guy who ends up on the front cover, the NFL player who ends up on the front cover of Madden often then goes on to have a horrible season, whether it be for injury or or you know controversy or something like that. But James, I think you've got a case here for the Bill Knowles curse. Putting the tinfoil hat firmly on my head right now, Brian, and thanks to everyone else on the Magic Sponge who gets along with my tinfoil conspiracies. But I'm just going to throw these names and numbers out there in regards to people who have done rehab uh, following the course with Bill Knowles. There, This isn't sort of insinuating anything to do with Bill and what people do there. But when you look at the names, Latrell Mitchell, after doing the course, comes back and has a calf injury, misses three months. Tom Travojevic um, does, does the course there for hamstring recovery, then has a pec rupture. He's out for more than three months. Obviously, we've just spoken extensively about Ryan Pappenhausen. He went over there on the rehab journey from his fractured patella. Now he's fractured his ankle out for three months. Luke Metcalf was another one. So he was rehabbed from his high-grade hamstring injury He's sustained another hamstring injury more recently. His return to play is a bit TBC, but he looks like at least a moderate to high-grade hamstring re-injury. I'm just going to let people draw their own conclusions there, whether that's just purely coincidental or we're dealing with a full-blown conspiracy that um, maybe these people um, don't necessarily need to go to Bill Knowles to rehab what they need to rehab. And then whether what they do there is preventing injury long-term. I think the other thing to say with that, Brian, as well, when we take the tinfoil hat off, is that injuries are well and truly the most multifactorial thing in health, aren't they? You know, it's like anything. It's like any musculoskeletal injury. It's like any pain concern. It's not just what you do, how you do it. It's all the other factors that make us human and make us complex that feed into it a little bit more. But I'm just curious if we get this Bill Bill Knowles curse and, and what this sort of looks like with the um, with the numbers so far because – they're big names and there's there's recurrent injury there, albeit not necessarily to the same thing they went to see him for. I just think that's a curious little sample size, isn't it? It's a curious sample. Yeah, mate. If, I, if nothing else. I, I think you're like there's there's two parts to it. Like I think obviously like Tom Turbo with the pec rupture, perhaps with the ankle fracture, like, you know, they're just things. They're, they're going to happen to anyone not related to anything. But, like, Latrell with a calf injury, like, you could – that could absolutely be a conditioning injury. Luke Metcalf with a hamstring strain could absolutely be a conditioning injury, that kind of thing. So, like, I think to your point, exactly what you're saying, like, injuries are so multifactorial. I think that that supports our, our point of, like – do you need to spend as much money as you're spending to send someone halfway around the world for injuries that there's so many factors to it that like we still have players, you know, suffering these injuries because even if you take um, turbo and paps out of it completely, it's still like a 50%, you know, like conditioning injury re-injury rate, uh, you know, which look, you know, once again, it's not to sit here and say like Bill is one of the best in the world and that's not, but it's more the nature of injuries and then tossing up that cost first benefit, you know, analysis. But I think overall going away from that side of things, I just think 
it's a bit like I, I'm I'm one of those guys, you know, when I used to play footy, I had to put one boot on before the other. Like, oh, you know, yeah. you like had to use a certain amount of tape and all that kind of thing. So, but yeah, I really think there's something to that because that's four guys. It's four from four. I, I can't think of any other NRL players who've been over to see him recently. But that's four from four who, t- within 12 months of going to see him, have suffered significant injuries. So, once again, that's not me throwing blame on Bill Knowles. I'm more just saying, like, the the conspiracist in me is like, is there a Bill Knowles curse? This is what people come to the sponge for, Ryan. <laughs> they come for the hard-hitting issues, and this is what we deliver every Sunday, week in, week out. We're going to wrap up the Bill Knowles chat there and the conspiracy stuff, Ryan. We're going to talk a bit of conspiracy stuff later and for the weeks moving forward. We love talking about that stuff. But we're going to talk NRLW. So I'm just going to list the 10 names I've got written down here. And if you want to speak to them in a bit more depth, just give us a hoy at the end of it. So we've got Holly May Dodd with a likely ACL injury. That looks like a fairly classical ACL mechanism. Mackenzie Wickey with an ankle injury. Fran Goldthorpe with a hyperextended elbow. Millie Boyle was ruled out with a shoulder injury pregame. Isabel Kelly was a HIA in the last five minutes of that Roosters game. Jess Sturgis had surgery on her broken finger. They're probably big implications for people in the Bundy mix. Um, Eliza Cialato was a HIA, but there was concern of whether there might be a facial fracture there for her. Sarah Tongatuki was an ankle injury out of that game with a hip drop tackle. Uh, Cortez Dupu was a hand injury. Tara McGrath-West was a sternum injury. Sophie Clancy was an ankle injury. Brian, anyone you want to talk to out of the NRLW in a little bit more depth that was um, someone we should spend some time on? Yeah, Holly May Dodd, the knee injury, about as textbook an ACL as you will ever see on video. Like you saw that lower leg shift. Uh, I've never come across a non-contact uh, episode of that that has not resulted in an ACL, unfortunately. Uh, Millie Ball, uh, for the mixer, people, shoulder pregame, there was no real information on that. I would suspect it's more like a rest leading into finals, but yet to have that confirmed. Isabel Kelly and Jess Sergis, like they are my go-tos in the centres for the mixer. So, like, depending on what happens with Kelly here, like I, I think Sergis with the broken finger a two-week return to play might be a bridge too far. So she should probably miss at least this week. And then, Kelly, if she failed a HIA, we're going to be looking for a new centre because they have just been locks, um, you know, for the last probably two or three seasons, definitely. But, uh, yeah, so that'll be interesting to see what's going on there. Uh, the only other one was Sarah Togatuki, that ankle injury with the hip drop. That was about the worst hip drop. I know, I think I said a couple of weeks ago, I'd seen the worst hip drop in a while. That was as pure as it gets. Yeah. Like literally she just left the ground and the whole weight came down on her ankle. Now it was one of those things where Togatuki hopped up, played the ball and then tried to get over because they scored a try directly off it. But that was just a, uh, that is why the hip drop is dangerous. That particular tackle, if you want to go and find it. Cause yeah, it was, um, it was nasty. Very good, Brian. Good wrap-up on the NRLW. What we're going to do now is just go into the Patreon questions. So patreon.com forward slash NRL Physio. You know where you need to go if you want to get these questions into the Magic Sponge every week and you want to get Brian to answer more of your questions in detail. So we've only got one this week, Brian. It's a good ethical question. I think it's it's one that's it's useful to talk about, and I think it's interesting in a sense. How is Kalen Ponger, by using painkilling injections for his AC joint, how is that not classified as performance enhancing in comparison to some of the other drugs and medications that are used in an athletic sense? 
Yeah, look, this is a really good debate, and it's not straightforward. It's not black and white. This is the grey of this kind of stuff. My answer to it simply is that they have to draw the line somewhere. That 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 is the simple answer to that because and the examples and I think in a roundabout way the way I've had it described to me is that anything that looks to bring you back to baseline health so it's not enhancing your performance beyond your normal capabilities it's just looking to bring you back to normal that tends to be what they're more lax on so the examples that like i've had used with me are you know a player has diarrhea or gastro on game day like do you say that they can't use gastro stop because it's enhancing their performance right without it they're going to be out on the field shitting themselves whereas with it you know that they're, they're, they're able to play and be okay same with like someone who gets migraines do you do you allow them you know to have medication for those migraines because that is you know it's not a footy injury but once again these are you know i guess physical ailments that they're using medication to kind of quell so that they can then go and play and like I had a few people be like you know oh look but they're things that'll come about on game day you know what about like they've known about these injuries all week blah like that that kind of thing but like even I was thinking like a really good example is someone like Jack Bird right Jack Bird has rheumatoid arthritis and I'm sure there are plenty of other players who have chronic illnesses, whether they be musculoskeletal problems or they be other issues. So, you know, you likes a Charlie Staines with his bowel perforation and then we uh, Cody Ramsey, the fullback from the Dragons. Yeah. So it's, you know, it's looking like he's going to have to retire. But if the only way these guys can play is by taking regular medication. So Jack Bird with his rheumatoid arthritis, he might get joint aches, you know, all that kind of stuff and need medication to get him okay for every weekend. Do we not allow that? You know, um, do like, I, like I've got a patient at the moment who unfortunately has a really bad ca- case of CRPS, which is a complex regional pain syndrome, which is a chronic issue that they are going to have to deal with moving forward and need, you know, medication to allow them to perform, uh, you know, as an athlete, do we do and, and there are limits on that. Like they can use certain uh, medications, but other ones not so much. So, like there are lines, and and you just have to draw the line somewhere. So it's just drawing the line of like, okay, let's sort of have medication that can get them back to their baseline as opposed to making them superhuman and like not being able to feel it. Because my argument like with it is that like Kalen Ponga, even if he gets that injection, right, he's not above a hundred percent, even with that injection, he is still playing at less than a hundred percent because if he cops another blow to that shoulder, he's like, he's going to need another injection or he's gone for the game. So these kind of painkill injections, they do not make the player superhuman because the player is already injured so they it's just taking them it might take them from 40 percent to 80 percent it is not taking them above 100 percent and that would be my argument as to why painkilling injections aren't 
performance enhancing in that respect. But I, I think you could draw you could draw the line a little bit this way or a little bit that way, and I wouldn't really have a problem with it. So, I mean, yeah, I like I, I'm sure you know you're probably pretty similar. You have to draw the line somewhere, but it is a it's a moral quandary or it's it's a hard mm. one to sort of come up with a with a firm answer. Yeah, no right or wrong with it. I think it just depends on what side of the fence you sit. You know, some people are going to be more on the conservative side. Some are going to be like, no, you know, push your envelope there a little bit. You do make a good point about performance-enhancing aspect, though, Brian, because I guess that's why, you know, particularly anabolic steroids, um, you know, diuretics and things like EPO, like things that performance-enhance and give you an unfair physical advantage are why those things are generally, um, you know, illegal and not being able to use in force, whereas... You know, I don't think a painkilling injection in a single site is necessarily going to put you at an unfair physical advantage over another person for a pre-existing injury that you're carrying in. So I think that's where, you know, I think that sort of things wouldn't be such a big problem um, from from where I sit, to be honest. Yeah, mate. Well, it's one of those things like, do you, like and this is going to extreme, but uh, like mm. I'm just using it as an example, but do you ban physio, right? Because like physio's improving people's ability to go out there and play better than they would without it, right? Like if they didn't, well, I hope I hope that's what we achieve as physios, mate. But, you know, like that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to, you know, like do modalities, do exercises, rehab, all that kind of stuff to get them to a position where they perform better than they would without it. So it's, yeah, so much stuff goes towards getting these guys out there. You just have to draw the line somewhere. But, look, we'll move on. Uh, Like, Supercoach, obviously over. We both, uh, I think, finished in the top 3,000, 4,000 or so. So, Yeah, where did I finish? I think I was through – oh, God, I can't remember. I I was about sort of, yeah, mid-threes, I think, off the top of my head, maybe three, five or something like that. Yeah, and I unfortunately just missed out on a – on a uh, top 1,000, you know, get the oh, KFC mate, socks Devo. like last year. So, you know, I'm just not a, not as, you know, not a good enough bloke to walk around in my KFC socks or get my key ring or anything like that, which it's just what I was aiming for all year, real bugger. <laughs> but uh, Disappointing. Look, let's go bunny mixer picks because it was a bit of a, it was a bit of a crappy week, I think, all round. Hit me with what you scored and then what are your plans because we're, we're into the final sort of three weeks of it. Yeah, we are. So not such a great week for me this week, Brian. You got me on the good bloke stakes this week. I've only got 371 to speak of in the mixer. So I went Ken McInnes, Georgia Hale. I learned my lesson now. I just was like, pick Georgia Hale and forget about it. Uh, Tohu Harris, second row. Nico, I boosted um, to 148. Then Isabel Kelly, and I boosted Tegan Berry, and she only boosted to 42. So that wasn't the best choice for me in the fullback position there, unfortunately. So... For this week coming in the mixer, my plan next week is to load up on the Roosters players versus the Cowboys. I think that's a pretty good matchup. I think as a point of difference, I kind of like Keely Davis at hooker. She's been playing 70 minutes. She's got good creativity. She's in a good team. I think she's probably one of the best nines in the competition. I'm pretty keen on her or Emma Manzelman from the Cowboys, but I just think the Cowboys might get a score put on them. So I'm more leaning towards Keely Davis there, maybe just sneaking a try as well. The other roosters there, obviously, apart from Keely Davis, Olivia Koenig, maybe Isabel Kelly if she gets named and gets through her HIA, or Keely Joseph at lock. She put up 71 in base in the mixer this week, which is a massive score. So she's a middle consideration. But I think, you, again, you just pick Georgia Hale. You just stick to the rule and pick Georgia Hale is what I'm going to do there. The only Smokies a pod might be Jada Taylor at fullback versus Para. Para been leaking the most points. Do you pick Jada Taylor there at fullback in the NRLW rather than Tegan Berry? 
I'm sort of chasing points there, so I might try to sort of sneak a pot in there, maybe with Jada Taylor. In the NRL, I'm probably favouring the Warriors and the Storm getting the wins next week, so I'll probably favour those matchups. I guess the the reasonable names there would probably be Harry Grant, Ellie Katoa, Nick Meany, Anfinil Blake, Tohu Harris, DWZ, but never fade SJ, mate. If 2023 has taught us anything, is that you never fade SJ. So I think SJ is probably going to get a run on my team, regardless of if he's 100% off his calf or not. I think it's it's SJ season, if it ever was, this week coming. Mate, there is nothing that the mixer isn't if it isn't for vibes. And, uh, like, you know, I, I vibe Bundaberg Rum, I vibe the NRLW, and I also vibe SJ. So yes. he will be he will be going in my team, and I will be boosting the hell out of him and just, you know, hoping that I can come away with the chocolates because I love, yep, yeah, I'll, I'll never... I won't settle until SJ has won the Dally M Clive Churchill double, which may still be this season. So we'll uh, we'll go with that. But yeah, look, I scored four thirty five, so a little bit better. Um, I boosted Cleary, which I think was probably the difference. My devastation was I tossed and turned over Sorensen and Liam Martin all week. Ended up going with Sorensen. He played sixty minutes and scored twenty, and Martin played the full eighty and scored sixty five. So there you go. Yeah, I, and then I went uh, Barry as well which was a bit of a killer because Tamika Upton was the other one I was tossing up with. But, uh, yeah, and there's another 40 points on the, on the the yeah, on the table that I left. But uh, other than that, mate, yeah, look, we've, uh, I think we've almost beaten, and this, this is purely down to Ryan Pappenhausen, we've almost beaten our record, uh, our record time. So once again, props to anyone for hanging around this long. Hope you're enjoying it. We're still finding stuff to talk about, even with limited games. But I think, you know, you take out the Paps injury, it probably would have been, yeah, 40-minute pod or, you know, 30-minute pod or something like that. But we probably still would have found stuff to talk about. About. But James, it'll be a bit of a chilled week um, this week, you know, especially for yourself. We've got a buy for the Bronx. I'm heading up. Uh, we've got a holiday next uh, next week, actually. Oh, we can talk about this live on the pod. I am not going to be at home next week, next Sunday night. So that we're going to have to figure out what's going on there because I've obviously got the home base here. So we'll have to figure out something out there, whether we um, podcast on Monday or Tuesday or something like that. We'll have to figure it out, but uh, uh, maybe try and do a remote pod on Sunday. But other than that, mate, uh, enjoy the the bye week for the Bronx. And then uh, I think you and I will probably both gear up and, and try and get to the prelim uh, the week after. Yeah, start budgeting for a Broncos prelim and a night out on Caxton Street, Brian. Just FYI, put that in your calendar for when the Broncos are playing up there at Suncorp. It's going to be a good game, whoever they get in the prelim there. So put a bit of money aside, put a bit aside for a few Bundaberg rums as well, I reckon. Yeah, no, I completely agree, mate. Uh, friend of the show, Bundaberg, uh, Bundaberg Rum, I love it. But uh, guys, as always, uh, look, if you like the show, give us a review, recommend to a friend. We really do appreciate it. We're hoping that the podcast, we're sort, we're still, for those who are interested, we're still sorting out this whole video thing. It's a bit of a to and fro with different, uh, you know, uh, programs and all that kind of stuff. But we're hoping by, definitely by next year, each and every week, it will be on YouTube. Uh, we'll have a lot more clips on socials and stuff like that. That, which will be good uh, but otherwise guys look they're out at the moment but still up them up them up the mighty Redcliffe Dolphins suspected broken left fibula suffering syndesmosis after that stem cell injury that he's come back from that's about it mate